0: Bill Camp, I am one of the ruling elders here at MetroCrest, and if you will please uh, stand with me for the reading of the Word. You can find this morning's text in Acts chapter 4, verses 15 through 35, and it's also printed in your bulletins. Acts chapter 4, verses 15 through 35. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old when they were released they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them and when they heard it they lifted their voices together to God and said sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is the word of God, and may he add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Most High and Holy Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would be pleased through your Holy Spirit to be here to teach and instruct us, to open our hearts and minds, to receive the truth and to be changed by it, to apply it to our lives by the grace of Jesus Christ and by the inward power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may all be seated. We do have to set this up a, a little bit, uh, if you'll recall, since a week has passed, and sometimes it's easy to forget a sermon even after one week. Uh, Paul, or Peter and John, rather, were dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to give an answer as to why they were preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And what occasioned this was that they had, through the power of the Holy Spirit, healed a man who was born lame and who had been lame for over 40 years. And in this healing, they, they had the opportunity then to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when dragged before the council, the council was extremely upset. Understandably so. Wouldn't you be if you had just executed a man or at least sought to have him executed only to find out that he had allegedly risen from the dead and now was being preached by a bunch of people who were formerly terrified of you. They saw their powers perhaps slipping away, and they wanted to seize it back. They wanted to maintain their rigid grip and control over the people of Israel. They held sway over the Jewish people with a dread fear that if you dared transgress Not only the law of God, but any laws that they could invent out of their own minds and hearts. That they could excommunicate you, cut you off from the people of God. You would be forbidden to go to the temple and to enjoy the worship of the Most High. You would be considered an outcast. Not just from religious society, but from society in general in the land of Israel. And so they drag Peter and John before them and demand an explanation from them. And instead of finding two timid people standing before them, shaking in fear, they find that they have dragged bold lions into their presence. And they weren't prepared. Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved the one whom you crucified god has risen from from has raised from the dead this is a powerful testimony And instead of cowering in fear, they stand strongly and courageously before them, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now they don't know what to do. They're in quite the quandary. And so in verse 15, they commanded them to leave the council and they conferred with one another. They come up with this idea of my first point, an unlawful prohibition. In their councils with each other, they wonder, what shall we do? A notable sign has been done. We cannot ignore it or deny it. This man was too old. We can't explain it away. A true miracle has occurred. And God has used, apparently, these men as his instrument to accomplish this miracle. So we can't explain it. We can't deny it. It would be easier if we could. If we could say it's a fake, it's a fraud. These men are hucksters. They've only shammed you. You've seen those uh, videos before on the news, I assume, where a famous faith healer uh, brings in an 18-wheeler full of wheelchairs and puts people in the wheelchairs who actually can stand up and aren't in need of wheelchairs, and then he calls them up to the altar and, and, and says that he pronounces them whole in Jesus' name and pulls them out of the wheelchair, and all the congregation erupts with applause and praise as they see what they believe is a miracle. But in reality, the whole thing is a complete and total fraud. But this wasn't the case with Peter and John. Everyone knew that this man was lame. Everyone knew that he could not walk, that he begged for alms, that he was completely uh, it was completely determined that he had to rely upon the generosity of others for his own sustenance and provision. A miracle has been done in our midst. But here is the, a, a glimpse into the heart of evil. Instead of rejoicing with this man that he who was formerly lame had leapt and walked and rejoiced in God. Instead of rejoicing with him and praising God, instead of sitting down before Peter and John and saying, Brothers, tell us what we must do to be saved. Show us the way of salvation. Teach us the gospel so that we too may follow Christ. Instead, they plot and scheme to try to quench the gospel of Jesus. A notable sign has been done, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So their idea is to prohibit the preaching of Jesus Christ. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus May I pause here for just a moment to point something out? The devil isn't concerned with moral preaching. In fact, he rather prefers it. He rather enjoys people who will stand behind the pulpit and will declare that you should be good people. You should be kind. You should be loving. You should be generous. He delights in that because you know what it creates? of people who are self-satisfied, who believe that somehow they are capable of their own salvation. That if they're just good enough and kind enough and generous enough and caring enough, God will certainly look upon them with favor and receive them into His kingdom. And the whole time they are blinded and deluded and on their way to hell still. They have no hope of salvation because they have not... to the fatal realization that there is nothing good within us. That as the scriptures declare, there is none who seeks after God. No, not one. All of us like sheep have gone away. Each one of us has turned to his own way. That we are filled with iniquity. That there is a corruption that comes not from without, but from within. Jesus pointed this out to the Pharisees. They were so careful to make sure that they washed before eating from their elbows to the tips of their fingers and they would wash meticulously almost like surgeons preparing for surgery. And one day they see the disciples walking through fields and gathering up grain and eating with dirty hands and they're aghast. How can they do this? Don't they know the contagions that they can incorporate into their bodies by eating with unwashed hands? Unlike we who make sure that we wash so thoroughly and meticulously. And Jesus said, this you do not understand. It is not that which comes from without a man that defiles him, but that that springs from within that defiles him. For out of the heart come adulteries and murders and lies and seditions and every sort of evil and wickedness. The contagion is already within. We cannot escape it any person who does a true inventory of himself or herself will have to come to the conclusion that we are miserable and wretched, that there is no hope of self-salvation, that I can't do enough good There isn't enough church attendance. There aren't enough prayers. There isn't enough money for me to give away. There isn't enough acts of kindness for me to do. I simply am not worthy to come before a holy God because I have sinned. In Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, the holy prophet comes before the throne of God caught up in a vision and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and his train fills the temple and he hears the thunderous voices of the mighty seraphim who fly about his temple day and night with six wings. With two they fly, two they cover their feet, two they cover their faces refusing to even gaze upon his magnificent and brilliant holiness. And they call out day and night without ceasing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the doorpost of the temple, mighty beams, shake at the sounds of their voices. And the whole place is filled with smoke so that no one may gaze upon his holiness. And Isaiah says, wow, this is so cool. I can't believe I got the chance to see this. Can't wait to get back and write a number one selling book. No. Isaiah cries out, oh, woe is me. For I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There is nothing holy in me, but I have gazed upon the holiness of God. We do quite well when we compare ourselves to one another. I can always find someone who hasn't quite made it as far as I have. But when we come into the presence of the Most High and realize that He is thrice holy, when we come before Him who cannot even stand to look upon sin, all of our sins come trudging up in our memories and minds. And we know for a fact that they would certainly sink us into the deepest pit of hell unless there is someone to intervene. And that person is Jesus Christ. He has paid the price. He has borne the fierce and furious wrath of the Almighty. He has suffered the punishment that I deserve for my sins. He has taken upon Him hell itself on the cross. And He has given me in exchange. His righteousness. I wear his royal robes so that whenever I stand before God the Father, he looks and sees not me, but Christ Jesus, his Son, in whom he is well pleased. Jesus is my only hope. Why do they want him to stop preaching in the name of Jesus? Because Satan fears gospel preaching more than he fears. He'll allow the person to go on and on from the pulpit about politics or about morality or about some societal issue. But he trembles and fears when a humble person stands up and says, there is one way of salvation, Jesus Christ. You will never save yourself. Flee the wrath that is to come, flee from the judgment of God, run to Christ no matter how sinful you are, no matter how gross and defiled you are, run to Christ and look to him alone for only he can save you. That is more than, they can, than Satan can possibly handle. And so he does everything in his power to destroy the simple preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why Paul said, that's all I want preached. That's all I want to make known is Jesus Christ and him crucified. We want you, we want to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Look at number, point number two in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. Do you understand what they're saying here? You choose. Should we listen to God or to you? In the military and law enforcement, there's a possibility that contrary orders may be given. And so when this happens, people are instructed that you're supposed to remind the junior officer that you've received an order from a higher-ranking officer that contradicts the junior officer's order. If the junior officer has any kind of sense about himself, he'll quickly go, oh, okay, go on about your business. I'll leave you alone. The general told you to do that, by all means. Do your thing. I'll stand down as a captain, you know? This is the idea here. We have the almighty God who has told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel unto every living creature and to make disciples of all nations, and then we have you who are telling us to do the opposite. To refrain from, to hold back from declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to decide for yourselves which one you would listen to in that situation. As for us, we cannot help but declare the things that we have seen and heard. John would later write in, his gospel, or in one of his epistles... That that which we have seen from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have touched with our hands, these things we declare unto you. We are eyewitnesses to the living truth of Jesus Christ. We heard his gospel ministry. We heard his fervent prayers. We saw him in his passion, passion and suffering. And we saw him rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And we are convinced he is coming back just as he said he would. We are captive by the word of God. When Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms and the Roman Emperor and the Pope's legate and the bishops and archbishops and cardinals and all of the people who were gathered together, assembled against him, told him, are these your books? And he said, yes, they are. Then you must recant. And after the second try of this and some prayer, He looked at them and said, but wait, some of these things have things that all Christians believe. If I were to recant to them, I would be to denounce the Bible and all all the the gospel. And they said, no, we don't want a horn answer. Give us a truthful answer. Will you recant? Yes or no? Luther said, since you cannot convince me by sound reasoning, and, it is, and I've often been shown where popes and councils have erred and continue to err. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither safe nor reasonable. I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. There is a wonderful power when the church stands i will not move back from this truth make all the declarations you want to make all the threatenings you want to take my life from me if you want to but i will not give up this sacred truth the church has stood throughout the ages and she must continue to stand against all of the onslaughts of the enemy And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they threatened them a little more and then say, there's nothing else we can do at this point, And release them. Notice one of the reasons, though, because of the people. Peter and John make their appeal to God. They fear God, and because they fear God, they don't fear the men. But the council makes their appeal to the people. We would punish them. We would do something with them if we could, but the people might rise up against us. I'd rather stand with Peter and John and fear God than with a council and fear men. Then we move on into a fervent prayer. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. A.J. Gordon once said, you can do more pray after you have prayed. But you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. There is a power in prayer that we as a church often neglect. This is an opportunity for us to go before the Most High and pour out our hearts before Him, to cry out to Him. I have an immediate audience at any time, in any place, under any circumstances whatsoever, to call out to God. How dare we neglect such a wonderful opportunity? And no wonder why we wander through life stumbling along when we fail to take time to stop and to pray. How many times have you been knee-deep in some sort of quagmire, some sort of difficult situation, some sort of thorny problem, and suddenly it occurs to you, I've started working on the issue, but I forgot to first of all take it to God. We should always take time before we begin to work on the issue to stop and pray, to call out to the Most High God. Here they are threatened with a loss of comfort, with bodily discomfort, perhaps with a loss of their lives as well if they persist. And they return to their friends and they engage immediately in prayer because it's absolutely essential to them that they call out to God for help. He is our strength. He is our hope. He is our assurance and He is our peace. Where else am I going to go? I have no hope in heaven or in earth, but in him. So I look to him for hope, for peace, for joy, for comfort, for salvation. I look to him for the ability to overcome life's issues. I look to God and God alone. And so they take the time to go before him in prayer. So what do they pray? Sovereign Lord who made heaven and and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is an interesting prayer because it recalled to mind the sovereignty of God. Jonathan Edwards talked about this. He said he loved to think about the sovereignty of God. There is such wonderful comfort that is derived from this doctrine that God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign that he rules over all the things that he has made, that he created them, sustains them, maintains them, and is working all things together towards his ultimate plan, which is for his glory and the good of his people. There is a comfort in knowing that God rules in heaven and in earth. They say that they are the high court, the Jewish Sanhedrin. There is no appeal above them, but I beg to differ. There is a supreme court in heaven to whom I can always appeal. And so Peter and John and all of the church gather together... ...and they cry out to God, the judge of heaven and earth... They take their case before Him and present it before Him. Knowing that He will hear and He will answer them according to His perfect plan. And there is an absolute trust in His sovereignty. Do you believe that God really rules? We are not subject to blind fate and and chance, capricious chance. We are instead subject to the sovereign hand of a loving, kind, gracious Father who is watching over all of His creation. We are not deists who believe that God created the earth because obviously it couldn't have come out of nothing like some people say. There had to have been a first cause. And so God created the earth like winding up an old clock and he sets it down and lets it take care of itself while he goes off to dilly-dally with something else. No, God has created all things and is intricately involved in every facet of his creation. Jesus said there is not a sparrow that falls from the heaven without your father knowing about it every leaf that falls from a tree during autumn, every drop of rain that plummets from a cloud, every single thing in the universe is governed by God. Some people mistakenly think, well, he's too busy with all the big things. He he can't really handle the little things, so I won't take those little things before him. But pray tell what is big for the Almighty. He is all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful. Nothing is too big for him, and nothing is too small. R.C. Sproul used to put it this way, uh, quoting the old poem, for want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, a rider was lost. For want of a rider, a battle was lost. For want of a battle, the war was lost, and all for want of a nail. And then he would say, if one maverick Adam existed in God's universe. It could destroy and frustrate every bit of his plan. But thankfully, there isn't one. All things are ordered by an infinitely wise God who controls every event that occurs in the earth, not just the bigger and more grandiose, but the smaller ones as well because they could frustrate the bigger and grandiose ones. I heard a preacher one time on the radio who said that, well, I describe it this way. It's like a cruise ship. God is a captain of the ship, and he's making sure that ship gets to its port, its destination. But he's not really controlling what goes on inside each cabin. Well, let's follow that analogy through. What if one of those cabins, there's a pyromaniac or a terrorist who decides he's going to try to sink that ship? How does the captain get it to port then? God makes sure that he controls not just the ends, but points the means along the way to get us to the ends. All things are subject to his divine control. He has declared the end from the beginning. And so they cry out with great comfort because they are looking to him, the sovereign Lord who made heaven and the earth and the sea, the creator and sustainer of all things. And then they quote his own word, the scriptures, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is from Psalm chapter 2. David, no doubt, was applying it to himself as he was thinking about nations that were raging against him. But David was also a prophet and was speaking prophetically of his son, of whom he was just the anti-type. His son would be the supreme, or I'm sorry, he was the type, His son would be the anti-type. His son would be the supreme ruler who would sit upon his throne and rule and reign from heaven over all things. truly in this city they were gathered together and this is the application of these verses now they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the gentiles and peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan to, and your plan had predestinated to take place so he says that they say that look the gentiles did gather together Herod and Pontius Pilate Pontius representing the the Romans, and Herod, of course, the Jews. But there were others, too, in the city who had gathered together. Roman soldiers who took them. There were people gathered there from throughout the nations because of Passover and so forth. They had gathered together against you and against your anointed, just as David had prophesied. But notice, even in this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was what you had predetermined should happen. Jesus was not caught off guard. He told the Pharisees in a remarkable statement. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have power to pick it up again. I'm always astonished whenever I read that and think about that kind of power. You think you're plotting to kill me? And your plots will succeed, but only because God has foreordained it. But understand this, I am laying my life down. And if I lay it down, I will pick it up again. When he was crucified on the cross, after hanging there for some time, the soldiers were giving orders to go by and break the bones, the leg bones of the victims. The purpose of this was so that they would asphyxiate and die more rapidly because it was getting near sunset. When they got to Jesus, they did not break his bones because they saw that he was already dead, and they marveled that he had died so quickly. Being used to executions, they had anticipated a man of his age and vigor that he would have been able to have survived longer. But in truth, what were his final words? Father, in your hands, I commit my spirit. It is finished. He laid down his life just as he predicted This was determined. Now, that doesn't wipe out human responsibility, of course. They were still guilty of sin for the crimes that they had committed against Christ and against God. However, they were still responsible because they didn't do this in order to fulfill the will of God. They did this out of envy and hatred and jealousy. They did this out of sinfulness, out of murderous thoughts and intents of heart. But God so overrides even the evil scheming of the enemy that he is able to bring good out of evil. Augustine once said, a good God could not permit evil to occur unless an omnipotent God were able to bring good out of it. And God is able to bring good even out of evil. Now look at what they pray for. Can you think about, can you think about what you would pray for under these circumstances? Lord, please Protect us, watch over us, spare our lives, spare the lives of our loved ones, keep us safe. Some of us might even go so far as to say, boy, where are those imprecatory psalms? Strike them, Lord, knock out their teeth. Destroy them, O Lord, rise up, O God, and, and wipe them out. But look at what they pray for. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So instead of praying, Lord, get them or Lord, make sure that you save and deliver us from their threats. Instead, what they pray for is boldness to continue on in spite of their threats. Why would they do that? Jesus has said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus had said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself. You must pick up your cross and follow me. And cross-carrying is not, wow, I've got a boss on my back at work. Cross-carrying is not, wow, I've got some real difficult times ahead. I'm not sure how I'm going to make all these bills work out and all that kind of stuff. Cross-carrying is a symbol of torture and death. Jesus is saying, you must be willing to pay the ultimate cost to follow me. You must be willing to sacrifice all to follow me. In Revelation, we are given the scene of heaven and gathered around the throne of Christ are a group of holy martyrs. And John says, who are these folks? And one of the elders says... These are they who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ, who have washed their robes in blood and who have come forth shining. There is a price to be paid for, the, for following Christ. And we, if we are to be faithful servants of His, must be willing to face whatever threatenings and punishment the enemy hurls against us and pray instead for more boldness to carry on in the mission that is ours. We live in America where we seem to be at comfort and ease right now. And if the Lord uh, delights to continue this then he can do so. But you know it's not this way across much of the world. Throughout the nations of Africa, Nigeria, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Egypt, other countries across that continent, throughout the Middle East, there are Muslims who are seeking to stomp out the name of Jesus Christ. In India, there are Hindus who are rising up and who have risen up against churches and Christian pastors and tried to destroy them and in many cases killed them. In China and North Korea, the great God is the state, and anyone who refuses to worship and bow before the state should be executed and done away with, and the church is fiercely persecuted. We have to make sure that we have such a firm resolve as they did that we cry out to God for strength in the face of persecution to say, I will continue to speak in the name of Jesus Christ alone. And what was the result? When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God gave them this sign to show them that he'd heard their prayer and would answer. it. And now finally, the last section of this text is a genuine love for one another. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There are three things that are mentioned in this portion of the text. First of all, that they had a a unity. They were one heart and soul. Secondly, that they uh, displayed this unity through generosity and care for each other through genuine love. And then thirdly, that the apostles continue to preach and proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that God may help us to have such a unity, to be of one heart and one soul, to love each other with such care and compassion. As I said when I preached last time on, in chapter 2, uh, whenever this is mentioned that they uh, gave of their goods to others, uh, sometimes those who uh, hold to Marxist views will try to use this to twist and distort the scriptures. This is not Marxism. This is done freely and voluntarily. This is done from a motivation of love and compassion. And people willingly gave of their own goods to care for others. This is a work that cannot be mandated from the state, that cannot be ordered from any form of human government. Other than the government of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself working through his Holy Spirit in the church. And this is one of the hallmarks of the Christian church. They fulfilled the command of Jesus to love one another. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. May God so mark us out that we may be proven that we are truly his children, his sons and daughters, that we have truly been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we have great love and compassion for each other.